good to be with you tonight <clears throat> and to see uh, some older friends and some newer friends. I was thinking earlier, Dale, I think you and I might have met before the Pugliottis even moved here from out in New Jersey. And so uh, I've known Dale since longer than the Pugliottis have even been here. So it's, it's, it's a joy to see people that we've known for many years and be part of your worship together tonight. Um, our text tonight is uh, from a portion of the Decalogue from Exodus 20. And uh, I'll be reading from verses 8 through 11. I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version. Hear God's word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, We are known as Presbyterians as being sort of a Sabbatarian people. Our tradition, both our catechetical and confessional tradition, have a very high estimation of the Sabbath, and so you may relax. I don't intend to say everything that could be said about these three verses tonight. Um, I think it's easier to say one or two things about it well than to say many things about it poorly, even if I could do the other. And and also, uh, our grandson Tripp was kind enough to give... Nana and Papa, his croup last week, and so uh, my voice may not last long, and you may be blessed with a brief sermon. We'll just see how far I make it. Since I retired this summer, a number of people have asked me, uh, what are you doing now that you have so much more time on your hands? And my standard response is, well, if it ever happens, I'll let you know. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Last fall, the fall before this past one, I spent seven nights in the forest up here, this side of Kennerdale, the little part of the state forest where I take my hammock out in the woods and spend the night in the woods alone, as Peter would say, with all my friends alone. Um, and uh, in, in this fall, with no responsibilities at the college, I only made it out two nights. So uh, I've been preaching, teaching, and writing uh, since 1984 or so in one institution or another. And so the ratio of teaching, preaching, and writing has changed. I'm teaching a little less and writing a good deal more and preaching about the same. Uh, But the reason I mention that is not just to give you my personal history, but to also explain that I think from what God's Word says, in the created order itself, God instituted both labor and rest from labor. And I don't find any footnote in there that says, but when you hit 66 or 67, miraculously that's all wiped away, right? So the proportions of our labor may change, and the manner in which we labor or rest may change, but the divine order will not change because it is, after all, the divine order. So as we look at this familiar passage today, I'd like to focus a little bit um, on on one aspect of the command that I think might be uh, overlooked a little bit. And so I'd like to talk about three things. The ground for the command. The ground for the command. Secondly, how many commands are in this command? And third, uh, to raise the question, whom this command obliges or obliged then? If we look first at the ground of the command, you know in the Decalogue that not every one of the ten words 
has a ground or a reason or a rationale. There's that whole group right in the middle. You shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not uh, murder, right? And that's it. They're just straightforward commands. Others, however, have a rationale or grounding. They explain why this particular commandment is given. So you may recall, for instance, in the previous command, it actually has four imperatives. You shall not have a God before me, shall not make graven image, shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so it gives a reason. This is one of those. This particular command has a reason. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And so this ground is placed in there as a rationale for why we are commanded to labor six days and rest one day. So you recall that the chapter before this, the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, describes the human as being made in the image or likeness of God. And so our mandate then, if we live full human lives, is is to be as much like God as we can, but on a creaturely scale. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. We are neither infinite, nor eternal, nor unchangeable. But he is wise, and on our better days, we could be wise. The rabbit can't. He is just, and on our better days, we could be just. The kangaroo can't, right? So the human can advance through life, emulating and imitating God's example in all ways that a creature could emulate a creator. And so that's the rationale for this command. God labored for six days in creation and then rested, And therefore, you shall labor for six days and then rest, because after all, reading between the lines, you are the image of God, and your life should consist of this juxtaposition or pairing of both labor and leisure. They're both parts of life. So the pattern of our Sabbath, as it were, is the pattern of divine Sabbath, the pattern of our labor is divine labor, and the pattern of our resting from our labor is the divine resting from his labor. And so note, uh, the divine pattern in this particular text suggests three specific things then, uh, that it involves resting. In six days, he created all that is and he rested. But then there's two things said about this day that are not said about the other five creation days. It says, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. That's not said about the other five creation days in Genesis. Even all the way through the sixth. He blessed the humans, and Dave Hive blessed some of the creeping things, but he didn't bless the day itself. This is the only day, the seventh day is the only day that's singled out this way, that God blessed it and made it holy. He sanctified it. Now, that's a little hard for most Americans to wrap ourselves around. We are a pragmatic people. As early as the 1830s, when Alexis de Tocqueville came through the United States and wrote his two volumes on democracy in America... He said they are a practical, hard-working people. Uh, he, he also said they, they haven't advanced far in the uh, pure sciences or in art, but in the practical sciences, they're exemplary. So Americans, we are worker bees, right? And when we call someone a hard-working man, that's an American's expression of praise, right? He's a hard-working man. And then we read our Bible and we go... God did not bless 
or make holy the days of his labor, he blessed and made holy the day of his resting. Twiddling his thumbs, as it were, right? That strikes an American as an odd thing, right? We think the important days, the blessed days, are the days of work. The holy days are the days of work. And this is the only day in the creation account that is both blessed as a day and hallowed as a day. Now, there's a third quality to it that we don't have time to explore tonight, and that is this. It's also the only day that doesn't end. You recall in the other six days, they end with the same phrase each time, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. And there was evening and morning, a second day. That does not occur at the end of Genesis 2. The Sabbath is eternal. When he ends his work on creation, it is ended forever in its creative dimension. He still providentially cares for it. He later sends his son to redeem it. But he has eternally finished making the material cosmos. And so his Sabbath goes on forever. It's not only blessed and hallowed, it's endless. And in eternity, our Sabbath will be endless also because we will join his Sabbath rest. So the pattern of Sabbath observance, the pattern of labor and leisure is the pattern that God establishes for us himself. And we, his his image and emulators, we try to work and rest as God worked and rest. So second, let's ask this, how many commands are in these commands? Uh, One of the funny things that that happened to me at some point in my life is I developed an enormous curiosity for Holy Scripture. Uh, And so when when I heard people talking about the Ten Commandments, I said, look to them, but there they are in Deuteronomy 5 and here in Exodus 20. And I started counting the commands. And I said, well, there's 17 imperatives in the Decalogue. (laughs) Isn't that funny that we call them Ten Commandments? And there's 17 imperatives. Count them yourself sometime. You'll find them. They're there. Right? And so, actually, the Hebrew, you know, says 10 words. There's no place in the Bible that they're called 10 commandments. They're called 10 words, three times Deuteronomy 4.13, Deuteronomy 10.4, and Exodus 34. Those three places they are referred to as the 10 words, the words of the covenant, but not 10 commandments. That was a sort of an English thing. By the way, the, the Greek translation of the 3rd century also says 10 words. That's what the word deca, logos, means, right? And Luther called it design vortis, so he called it 10 words and so forth. So, and the Latin in the 6th century calls it 10 verbum, using words as well. And the reason they did so is there's plainly more than 10 imperatives. And so what happens is when people are trying to figure out where does a word end and where does one begin, this kind of a thing, you have to wrestle with it. Some of them are brief. You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal. See, those are three quick imperatives. But this one, this what we call Sabbath command, actually has a decent number of verbs in them. See, if you can count them with me, you can do, you can do this on one hand. Uh, you don't even need the second one. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep to keep it holy. All right? Remember is a command, the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and shall do all your work. And then a little bit later on it, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. There are actually five imperatives in this one word. And so this command, as you will see, involves both the days of labor and the day of rest. And we call it the Sabbath command, putting the emphasis on that particular syllable, right? But actually, 
it also addresses the other six days as well, doesn't it? Because we remember, and we have six days when we are commanded to labor. Now, even the word remember, you see, we are to recall in our observance of this command the divine pattern. We remember God's labor in creation. We remember his resting from creation. And so uh, that's part of what we do. But you'll notice we are not merely commanded to rest from labor. We are commanded to labor here. We are commanded to labor. Six days you shall labor and shall do all your work. And so the Sabbath command, oddly enough, commands both laboring and a cessation of labor. In other words, what it commands is the pattern of labor and rest. Both are commanded in the thing. So, now we do not mention Pope John Paul II very often in OPC and PCA pulpits, but he had a little essay called On Human Work, a papal bull that he delivered. Um, And if you had not seen his name at the top, you would have thought it was written by Calvin or Luther. It's a very, very interesting treatise which seems to have borrowed from the thinking of the entire Christian tradition, and uh, every Protestant would love it, but note what he said about it. Man ought to imitate God, his creator, in working, because man alone has the unique characteristic of likeness to God. He emphasized the fact that the God who spent creative work for six days is the pattern that we ought to emulate, and we should labor um, uh, as well as rest from labor. So, uh, the... uh, the, uh, the pattern or the ground of this command is the divine activity. Uh, it actually has five commandments in it, especially those that tell us to labor and then to rest from labor. But then whom did the command oblige? On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter. By the way, if you have teenage sons and daughters, you don't have to worry about that. It takes care of itself. They won't do anything. Uh, you, uh, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner within your gates. And the Deuteronomy text is even longer. You recall that Moses broke the original tablets because of the idolatry of the golden calf. And then later he works with the Israelites, and there's a second giving of the law, which is what Deuteronomy means. And so there is woven into it certain explanations and warnings and so forth that weren't even there in the original pattern. So listen to how it comes out in the Deuteronomy version Uh, in Deuteronomy 5. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That your male servant, female servant, may rest as well as you, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. There, in addition to the creation pattern, he mentions the Israelites' 500 years of bondage in Egypt as an additional reason for them to treat graciously those who labored for them and not require them to work seven days a week. That they were to treat, to treat them almost the way Yahweh delivered the Israelites at least once a week. They would deliver their slaves from labor. A very interesting thing. But you'll also see that the entirety of Israel uh, was what the theologians call a theocracy, an unusual political experiment in which God was the lawgiver at Mount Sinai. God appointed prophets as his spokesmen in this kind of a thing. And so the entire land comes to a rest. Humans and non-humans cease from their labors on the seventh day of the week. 
because it's a picture, Canaan is, isn't it? It's a picture of the heavenly Canaan. And when we cross Jordan, it's a reminder that we one day cross through the bounds of this earthly life into the next life. And so you'll notice then, and even though our culture is a mixed culture of believing and non-believing, not in heaven and not in Israel. That is to say, the whole uh, country was obliged to this, including their cattle, to be a picture that one day the laborious nature of this fallen earth will give way to a day of comparative rest and ease and celebration and blessedness and holiness and so forth. So this command does not command only a negative thing, you shall do no labor on the seventh day. It commands also a positive and a negative, a pattern of labor and rest. When I've lectured on this reality in the past in academic settings, I always title it labor and rest in biblical perspective, but I hyphenate the first three words, labor hyphen and hyphen rest. Labor and rest in biblical perspective because the two are combined here. The command to labor, to work, and the command to rest from labor. And so it's not labor in Christian perspective, it's not leisure in Christian perspective, but labor and rest or labor and leisure in Christian perspective. So all of our life, in some sense, fits into those categories. And in our fallen and rebellious condition, it can become a chaotic mess at times. Leland Riken, who was the father of Philip Riken, who's now president of Wheaton College, uh, Leland Riken was professor of English literature there for 40 years, just retired about a decade ago. He wrote a book about uh, Christian labor and leisure. And early in the book, he said, someone had mentioned early in the 20th century that we work at our play and play at our work. So if we have worshipped the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, we've inverted everything. We've made everything out of place. And so, so the people observe that we work at our rest, or our play, and play at our work. And then he says, it, the condition now, that this would have been the turn of the millennium, he said the condition now has worsened. We worship our work. We work at our play, and we play at our worship. Worshiping our work in the sense that all the decisions we make at life seem to be secondary to our job. It, it plays the role Yahweh did in Israel. He says we worship our work. And we work at our play. We have forgotten how to play. We have, we have regimented everything. We picked up games of basketball, football, or baseball coming home on the bus almost every day. We never played an organized sport in our life. We called our own fouls, made sure we had fair teams. None of it was organized. Uh, it was just play. We sometimes would go out with someone else and just throw a football or baseball back and forth. No rules, no bats, nobody running bases. We were simply playing. And if you were a Jesus freak or a hippie in the 1970s in college, there was no ultimate Frisbee. It was not an organized sport. We just threw the Frisbee for the joy of watching the thing sail through the air. Right? But as a culture, we work at our play. Even play is not refreshing. Even rest and leisure is not refreshing because, Riken says, we, we labor at it. We work at it. I found myself guilty this once at the range in New Hampshire. I used to play golf, and uh, I'd go out to this range once or twice a week and hit some balls. And Tom, who was one of the teaching pros there, said, uh, Dave, uh, what are you doing today? And I knew what he's getting at because he was one of those instructors who said, never just go to the range and beat balls. 
there should be some specific thing you're trying to accomplish and achieve when you're there. And so I said, well, I'm trying to draw the six iron. I want to hit a little Ben Hogan six iron. I want the thing to go straight up in the air, and then as it falls, have just enough right to left spin that it tapers over like this as it falls. But then I noticed what I said. I'm working at drawing the six iron. Working, right? It's supposed to be play. It's supposed to be play. You see, so the confusion is enormous, and I think that this passage helps us to recognize that both labor and leisure are important. They're both part of the divine economy, and we should do our very level best to do each to the glory of God and following the example of God. So, uh, Riken said this, In the actual account of creation, moreover, God rests from his creative work after each day, setting up a rhythm of work and rest or leisure. won't be able to develop that with you, but here's what he meant. If you read the Genesis 1 narrative, where you have the six days before the seventh day, you'll notice that with only one exception, at the end of each creation day, God rested, paused, and observed what he had made. Right? So if you take a simple one like the first day, and God said, let light be, and light was. And he called the light day, he called the darkness night, and behold, it was good. And he observed that it was good. There's only one of the six days that does not have that concluding expression, and he observed, you see. He doesn't just keep working and go to the next phase. He takes time to look at what he's made. So he's like Rembrandt, isn't he? Rembrandt, you can imagine, stepping to his easel, and he's got a blue... You can be sure he had some blue. Uh, He steps to his easel, and he puts some blue on that canvas, and then he steps back and he says, Yeah, that's good. And then he steps back again, right? Maybe with some brown or some green. And he steps back and says, Yeah, that's good. And what he means at each point is it's becoming what he planned it to be. And of course, at some point, thousands of steps back and forth probably, at some point, Rembrandt says, maybe it'll, no, it doesn't need any more brown. No, it doesn't need any more green. And then he steps back and calls Mrs. Rembrandt to get a glass of wine. He's finished, right? That's what God does because on the last, it says, and he behold, he beheld it was very good. Each five days, he saw that it was good, saw that it was good, saw that it was good, and he said, saw that it was very good. That's because he's finished the whole thing now. And in all of the interactions of all the various creeping things and flying things and swimming things and all the plants and everything else, he's now like Rembrandt, and he pats himself on the back, right? And so, actually, if Riken is correct, and I think he is, God not only rests entirely on the seventh day, which is endless, but he takes pauses between each of the other days also to stop and take pleasure in the work of his hands. Like a baker smelling fresh bread out of the oven, right? Or a child finally learning to write the script in cursive and shows his mom or dad the script that's written in cursive and he's gone through all 26 letters in cursive print and he's so satisfied that he's done it. He doesn't immediately now say, I can do my numerals, right? He's just satisfied to sit there and look at it. And Reichen says that's what God does. That is to say, there is a celebratory character to our resting from our labor. An honest looking at it and taking appropriate joy that God gave us the ability to do as he did on a creaturely scale. So I only have three words of application to you about a text like this. Many more could be made if we dealt with other aspects of it. The first is, since this is fundamentally a practical text, 
do not attempt to mix labor and leisure. Do not attempt to blend labor and leisure. They are different in the divine economy. God labors and then rests. He doesn't do them at the same time. He doesn't do them at the same time. You can't work well if you're trying to play while you're doing it, and you can't play well if you're trying to work while you're doing it. Right? So if you happen to be out playing tennis or golf, put the cell phone away and don't answer any calls from your boss. The way my Uncle Ed put it to me when I went off to college, he said, David, if you just look at your college years as a a 40-hour-a-week job, and if you work eight hours a day, three or four hours of classes, four or five hours of study, if you do that, you'll probably get on the dean's list, and you'll still have three or four hours every afternoon or every evening, as your choice is, to go to the gym and play basketball or whatever it is you wish to do. And he was right. That was good advice. And he said, you know, don't try to study while you're listening to rock music in the background and this sort of a thing. And, and he was right. When I began my doctoral studies in 1980 in, in Richmond, Virginia, my home, uh, my friend Walter Felton was beginning his studies at the uh, dental school at uh, Medical College of Virginia, now VCU. And uh, so he began his doctoral work as I began mine. And after the first week or so, he and Sally came over And he said, the dean gave us an interesting talk this week. And I said, what did he say? He says, well, it was a little coarse, so I can't give you the actual language. But what he did is he said, I'm about to give you the briefest speech ever heard, so listen carefully. And they all leaned forward. He says, when you work, work like heck. And when you play, play like heck. Right? He got it. Right? When you work, work. And when you play, play. But don't try to blend them. In the divine economy, they are distinct. And in the human economy, when we're healthy, they remain distinct. Secondly, work heartily or not at all. Work heartily or not at all. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he dealt with several categories. And he even at one point in chapter 3 addressed the bondservants there, slaves we would call them. And of all things, to those particular people, he said, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work heartily. Can you imagine telling a bondservant to work heartily? They did the hardest work there, right? All the work that no one else had to do. In the ancient world, that's what you did. You defeated people militarily, and you ran off with the spoils, part of which was their population, who did all your hard work for you. And he said, to work heartily. To them, not as to men, but as to the Lord. And I think what it means for us is something like this. If in your own mind you you have not understood why you're doing a certain thing, maybe you ought to just not do it. (laughs) If it's worth doing, it's worth doing heartily. This altered the way I did household chores about 25 years ago when I understood this the first time. Because I used to say, well, I've got to mow the lawn, or I've got to rake the leaves, or I've got to clean the gutters, so I can get back to the important stuff. God providentially cares for his creation, and he entrusts to T. David Gordon one tiny little bit of it, and says, now you care for it the way I care for mine, right? And so, now I just take it as, okay, this is my little microcosm. God has the whole cosmos. I have this little park, 213 Edgewood Avenue in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And now I'm going to try to care for that as someone made in God's image. And you know it's made it a lot easier. Right? It's made, made it more hearty. And so I can do these things heartily, right? Because not just that they have to be done, 
Because it's good to take care of the properties we live in. And it's good to clean them. And it's good to wash clothes and so forth. All of these things are things that if we figure out how they fit in the divine economy, we can do them heartily. And I recommend if it's not worth doing heartily, it's not worth doing at all. And so don't try to blend labor and leisure. And when you work, work heartily. Figure out where it sits in the divine economy and do the best you can to work heartily. Now, the third part is a little tougher. We were reading from Genesis 2, or uh, Exodus 20, and referring back to Genesis 2. After Genesis 2, if I'm not mistaken, comes Genesis 3. I'm not good at arithmetic, but I think Genesis 3 follows Genesis 2. And there we have the rebellion of the human against the divine order and God's curses upon us and the ground and the created being uh, because of it. And so, uh, because of that, and I'll read a word or two from it, here's the third point. Expect even your heartiest labor to be tiring and frustrating at times. To be tiring and frustrating at times. Because we've been discussing the original purpose of labor and rest in the created order before we rebelled against it and before God's curses on us for our disobedience. Since then, the matter is more complex, and even our most heartfelt and hearty labor is often greeted with a certain amount of pain, sorrow, and frustration, and you should expect that to happen in the fallen world. So let me remind you of that language. And to Adam he said, "...because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree..." of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The way we could put it this way is labor was not laborious in Genesis 1 and 2. Labor becomes laborious after Genesis 3. And we should expect until our Savior returns that the kinds of realities spoken of in Genesis 3 will characterize human labor. Even our heartfelt labor that we've carefully segregated out from our rest, even our heartfelt labor will often frustrate us, sometimes injure us, and sometimes make us sorrowful and sad because that's the circumstance we find ourselves in. Our Savior knows that and provides His own comfort for us in this present circumstance. I'm going to repeat for you a moment, in a moment the invitation Christ offered to His disciples that you all know virtually by heart. And I just ask you to listen for the references to Genesis 3 in it. Right? Listen for the references to Genesis 3 in it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, he didn't say, come to me, those among you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That's his reference, you see, to Genesis 3. In the sweat of your brow you will labor. And he knows that all now are laboring in a difficult environment 
Then he says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. He does not pledge rest for our bodies, which sometimes are just plumb worn out. He doesn't pledge rest for our minds because we go to bed many nights worrying about the next day's labor and worrying about paying the bills and worried about our teenage children and their friends. All right? And so the mind may not rest in this fallen world. The body does not always rest in this fallen world. But when the soul knows that it's owned by the Savior, the soul does rest. And such a soul says, I can endure the pains and sorrows and difficulties and afflictions of this life because this is not the final word and it is not my final experience. There is a day of rest yet to come and our Savior will surely keep us in the palm of His hand until a better day emerges in the future. And until then, if our soul rests in Him, even if the body and mind are occasionally restless, that's good enough for us because that may be all that we can expect in a fallen world. But if we know that our Redeemer lives, and because He lives, we do also, we will be able to sustain the difficulties of our labor and the difficulties of our leisure until He comes for us. That God would give us grace to do so is the prayer I suspect of you and me. So let us pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you did not spare your Son, but gave Him up for us all. And He does not look upon our earthly circumstances removed from it, for He was in His earthly time here a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He understands our difficulties. He understands our afflictions. And we thank you that he invites us to him and offers his comfort to us in our souls. Help us, we pray, in our own labor and rest and in our conversations with one another about labor and rest to emulate you and to try to labor as you labor and to rest as you rest. And so make our period of resting always especially blessed holy and refreshing, we ask, for him who loved us and gave himself for us, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.